The labyrinth of estate planning involves navigating goals, assets, taxes, investments, and the future. Flexibility is key. Kevin Kalaki's guest this episode is adept at the ins and outs. Doug Paul leads the Wealth Preservation and Estate Planning section of McGinnis Law. Doug uses trusts, family business entities, and life insurance to help his clients and has experience in charitable planning, asset protection planning, and planning to mitigate transfer tax and income tax. I'd like to thank Doug Paul for joining us today. Doug serves as the practice lead for the Wealth Preservation and Estate Planning Group at McGinnis Lockridge Law Firm here in Austin, Texas. Doug focuses his practice on estate planning through the use of trusts, family business entities, and life insurance. His experience includes charitable planning, asset protection planning, and planning to mitigate transfer tax and income tax. He is an expert in charitable planning, asset protection planning, and planning for mitigation of transfer tax and income tax. Doug has an undergraduate degree from the University of Texas here in Austin and an MBA in law degree from Louisiana State University. He is board certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization in Estate Planning and Probate Law. And we have just found out he is now three years, not two years, ranked as one of the best lawyers here in Central Texas. He's a frequent speaker at various estate planning organizations and associations, including the Austin Financial Planners Association, Texas Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors, Victoria Estate Planning Council, and the National Business Institute for CPA CLE and the Austin chapter of CPAs. Quite a mouthful, Doug, but uh, great background. Thanks for coming on. We've known each other now for a long time. I think it's been Close to, yeah, close to 15 years. 15 uh, years. Yeah, been, been, been a long time. We've been working together. So uh, we've been sharing, you know, not only clients, but chances to participate in pro- professional education throughout the community has been wonderful as well. So thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to spend a little time with you talking about what we both have a lot of passion for, which is trying to help families address some of these issues. That's right. So speaking of those issues, the reason I asked you to join us today is many of the conversations that we're having here at the firm are around the uncertainty of the tax code in in future estate tax law, um, estate planning law. And really, I know what questions that I field on a daily basis, but you being hands-on in the estate planning side field even more than we do uh, with your clients. So what are right now, really, what are the most common questions or, or what are clients thinking about and asking you about right now? So I get a lot of questions in relation to what's going to be the future of the estate tax, what may happen in Congress, you know, either later this year or in subsequent years. Uh, of course, a few months ago, the, the focus tended to be on, will something pass that will be retroactive to the beginning of, of 2021, mm-hmm. you know, looking backwards from January 1, 2021 going forward as the year has gone on. That, of course, that fear has dissipated a little bit. But there are several bills pending that would still have an impact in relation to what happens with the estate tax going forward, whether it's 2022 or some subsequent year. And so most of the questions that I get are questions about you know, what's going to happen with it, which is difficult, as, as you know, to, to answer for our clients. It's a little bit like what's going to happen with the market or what's going to happen with, you know, the performance of certain types of assets, because those are unknowns. We don't really know. We have ideas because of what bills have been proposed. We have, uh, you know, a little bit of like kind of reading the tea leaves to figure out what might happen, but it's hard to say. Right now, the important thing for clients to understand is under our current law, 
we have a, an $11.7 million estate tax exemption. And that number will inflation adjust. And so it'll go up slightly each year through the end of 2025. And then under the current law, January 1 of 2026, that number will be cut in half to whatever is the then current number. So if you inflation adjusted the 2021 number to maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of $12 million at the end of 2025, January 1, 2026, it would be 6 million under the current law. Now that, that may not you know, be the law that we're actually operating on when we get there. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the proposals have been to either move forward that reduction, that 50% cut to, you know, next year or a subsequent year sooner than 2026, but we don't know if those will pass or not. There has been other proposals that would actually reduce the exemption further from the today $11.7 million to a $3.5 million uh, estate tax or death exemption and a $1 million gift tax or lifetime exemption. And both of those numbers came from law that was in place a little over a decade ago. So, so there, there's a lot of different you know, proposals, a lot of different positions. The, the thing about the estate tax is as, a, as you know, if you look at the entirety of our revenue and the entirety of the American population, it affects a very small number of folks, but it's mm -hmm. such, an, such a large number in total dollars for those people that it's a very much a political hot button issue where both sides of, of the aisle kind of focus on it and have a discussion about it. Yeah. So it's become an overly politicized tax yeah. uh, in many ways. So it's really hard to say at this point, but th those are what we talk about nearly every day with clients. Thanks for that quick background. Uh, very similar to the conversations that we're having on, on our end. Obviously, yours are, are in much more volume because of the work that you do. Let's do this. Let's just talk about some of the basic things, techniques that families can use to address right now, tax situations, potential estate tax situations, things that are easy to do. I don't involve a trip to Doug Paul's office sure. uh, to have documents drafted or changed. Uh, and then probably spend more of the bulk of the time talking about those complex issues because that's real where the real meat of, of the conversation happens. And, you know, when we're doing that, those planning techniques, we can actually illustrate what that impact is to the estate, the children, charity, and things of that nature. And it becomes real valuable to our families. So let's start off. What is kind of the easiest, you know, least known technique that someone could just do now with, without having to engage a lot of people? Right. And I would really like kind of what you were saying, Kevin, break it into those things that you would need uh, professional assistance for, either a, a lawyer or a CPA, uh, and those things that you will not need assistance for. So some of the easiest things that clients can look at doing or some of the charitable options that are really set up, you know, directly through financial firms, such as a, a donor advised fund, which allows you to make charitable gifts and, and really make a large charitable gift in a current year, and then take the deduction in the current year, but then actually have the money spread out and delivered to charities over several years. So a lot of times clients that are looking to have some form of a, a pop in income, maybe because of a liquidity event uh, or something, you know, some, some event that has a lot of income in a particular year, a donor advised fund is a really good way to make sure that if charity is part of their everyday life anyway, where you can time the gift to charity with the income of that, and so that you can get the most value that way. Um, so we have lots and lots of clients that are that are doing that, and there's really you know very little cost to creating a donor advised fund. It's not something you pay a lawyer or 
or a CPA to help you with something you can help clients with, Kevin. But you know, it's really not not much of a cost. It's just having a minimum amount that's in those accounts, and those are not, in my experience, not huge uh, balances that they require to start that. So it's it's a very helpful thing, and again, that gives you a income tax deduction for a transfer to charity, like charitable gift, in the year that you do it but you don't actually have to distribute the money to them in total for many years. You only have to give a limited amount, 5%, in fact, to the charity in the first year that you do it. Yeah, I think the best summary I've heard of donor advised funds is you have the ability to separate the tax year of the gift from the actual gift year of the gift that it's going to the charity. Great, great tool. Yeah, Yeah, that's and that's one we use because so many people, so many of our clients, charity and charitable giving is a really important part of what they do and a really important part of their life. And so, you know, we we know that and this just provides a way to be able to do it in the most efficient means in terms of timing. I I also like the donor advised funds for two more reasons. Number one is uh, because our clients are, you know, in the ultra high net worth space, typically, you know, they'll have years where they've made an investment that pays off. And mm-hmm. so their, their mm-hmm. income isn't very stable. It, it goes up and down. It tends to be high. So they tend to use them every year, but also they have years where there's large, you know, influxes of, of capital due to exits and they're very great tools there. And the second reason is I found this is they're wonderful for next generation education. Mm-hmm. So the family can get involved in them. They can revolve their family around the donor advised fund with a family mission statement, a family philanthropic statement. The children can go out and do research on grants to make to different charities and come back and propose that at a family board meeting or mm-hmm. just propose mm-hmm. it to the patriarch matriarch of the family. Um, so not only is it financial capital from a, a charitable standpoint, it's also social and philanthropic capital for these families. So a way for some of these younger generations to get plugged into nonprofit boards in groups of people that they want to be involved with from the professional side as well. So really, really great tools. And, and that they're a tool for the bigger process that we try to get our clients to go through. I know it's important to you. It's important to me, which is the education of family members about the meaning of wealth and educating them for that transfer as it happens through their lifetime. So as you were saying, it's a way to connect younger family members with people in a community that, that might be you know important for them to know or important in terms of what their long-term goals are with the with the charitable component. And that's really critical. You know, all too often we see in our practice, and I'm sure you see it in your practice, that folks have not taken the time to really get their second generation family members up to speed on what all of this means. And so when the time comes that they're actually in charge of things, the second generation family members don't feel prepared and it can be overwhelming and problematic. Yeah. Well, and I think also one of the other, maybe a lesser known piece of the tax code that's fairly simple is the qualified charitable distributions. Mm-hmm. Great, Give us a rundown on that. Yeah. yeah. So the qualified charitable distribution is a tool that came into existence uh, about 15 years ago now, back in 2006. But it's a tool that unfortunately, for whatever reason, a lot of folks are just really not familiar with. And what a qualified charitable distribution or what we'll call a QCD is a distribution directly from a qualified retirement account to a charity. And these are, you know, there's a little bit of a limitation on what types of charities you can make the QCD distributions to. Um, But the effect of a QCD distribution is that it's not treated as income to the account holder. 
and it counts against their uh, required minimum distribution as provided under the you know the schedule for required minimum distributions. So it's a very you know very helpful tool in terms of a client that may have you know a larger required minimum distribution than they need, and they also are inclined to be charitable uh, in any event. So it's a way that we could not have to include that distribution in in the client's income and still get the income or get the the assets to charity, which is what their goal was in the first place. Uh, Now, the qualified charitable distribution has come and gone a little bit over those last 15 years, so that might be part of the reason that clients haven't been as quick to do it, but we do have it now, and it's one that I would definitely encourage folks to to use. Now, you have to have reached your your required, or what at the time they passed, it was your required beginning date, meaning you have to be uh, at least 70 years old in order to be able to make a qualified charitable distribution. Uh, you can't do it prior to that. So, so that's one point that I think folks sometimes don't, you know, don't jump to. And I said 70, I should have said 70 and a half. So there you apologize. go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so. yeah, I think a lot of people don't think about, they look at their IRAs or their qualified accounts and they think to themselves, I have X dollars. And the reality is they don't. They, they're right. in, a, in a very high cost partnership with the IRS in right. those. And this is a, a little piece of the code that allows them to take up to $100,000 a year and give it direct to charity. I would say the most common question I get on those, Doug, probably the same one you do is, can I put it in my donor advised fund or in my family foundation? And no. the answer is no. no. Yeah, unfortunately not. It'd be, be great not. if you could, but be great but if the, you could. Yeah, but the purpose is really to get it to, um, you might think of it in terms of getting it really to active charities would be the way to, to, to say it. You know, it's mostly public charities that you're going to be looking at to and have marketed in this year, in this area, universities, those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know there's a couple other things here on the simple side that I just wanted to breeze through, but then I want to move into the more complex planning mm-hmm. tools. Uh, number one, obviously Roth IRA conversions. If you're staring at the the prospect of higher income in the future and, and you're not charitably inclined, look at, go ahead and paying those taxes now. And even coupling your Roth IRA conversion with some significant giving to donor advised funds or charitable trusts is a really fantastic tool. We can talk about that later too. Uh, if you are an investor, which many of our clients are, and you invest directly into you know, startups and small companies, mm-hmm. be aware of QSBS. In fact, I was just on Hall Martin's podcast, Investor Connect last week uh, with the 10 Capital Group. And, and I mentioned this again, as, as a both as a startup founder and an investor, be aware of QSBS, be aware of 1202 and 1045, being able to roll over those if you don't mm-hmm. hit the timeframes is a really neat tool. Again, it's I think it's kind of like QCD. It's one of those pieces of the tax code that most people don't know about that they should. Yeah, and, and it's particularly with QSBS. The issue that you can run into with QSBS is if that's not on the radar for the for the founders or not on the radar for the people involved in the startup early on, there could be some decisions that are made that can prohibit qualifying for that later. And so, you know, it's something that kind of from maybe not day one, but from, you know, well enough before the transaction that should be on a client's radar. And I think a lot of times advisors aren't necessarily thinking about that as they're, you know, maybe seeing a client's, you know, assets grow uh, in terms of seeing their, their business being able to, you know, grow and get to the point where there might be an acquisition at some point. Well, let's go ahead and jump into some of the more complex tools. And, and Doug, you and I have talked about this for a very long time, and we share, I believe, still this today, the same philosophy that 
you know, if, if the three rules of real estate are location, 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 the three rules of good estate planning is control, control, control. And, um, you know, from that standpoint, that is a big fear with, with a lot of families as they make large gifts or make large transfers outside of the estate or to family members, you know, am I going to have enough wealth to maintain my lifestyle? Am I giving too much to my kids? Am I giving too much to charity? Have, have I lost control of these assets? You know, mainly that's, that's really what they're coming back to. And so therefore I think my, at least our overall feel is yes, you can do some really great estate planning and with some very complex tools and have the chances of 100% efficacy or getting every asset into the right place exactly perfectly, or you can do it about 90, 95% and have, you know, much more control than if you went for that last little five or 10% to get outside of the estate. And so trying to take some of these more complex tools and make them simplified and useful is a, a tough situation. One thing I continue to gravitate toward you and your practice is your ability to take these complex tools and make them simple. So if you were to say, you know, what, what is the most common complex, you know, tool that's being used right now for estate planning or tax planning, what would it be? Uh, well, it's a, that's a great question, Kevin. And, you know, a lot like your practice, my practice is dictated by what the client's goals are, and what their current situation and their assets are. But in that regard, we are usually looking at a lot of transfers to, to trust for family members, sometimes gifts, sometimes sales to, to trust, which is a concept that we'll talk a little bit about here uh, in a few minutes. But it's the idea that you know, the earlier that we approach these this situation, the earlier that we're able to get to, you know, moving wealth before it explodes, the better off we'll be. And so most of that is setting up some form of, uh, of a trust structure for family members and then doing, in most cases, a combination of a gift and a sale to that trust. Yeah. And th these are oftentimes what are called grantor trusts or defective trusts. And those are important, just in th that, that, that idea is important just because this type of transaction does not carry any income tax consequences with it. So there's, as you know, Kevin, different types of trusts that can be set up. Certain types of trusts, like a grantor trust, for income tax purposes is the same as the person that sets it up. So if, for example, I you know, had a, uh, stock in a startup company and, you know, thought that that stock was going to, you know, explode in value, one of the techniques I could use would be to set up a grantor trust for someone. Maybe I set it up for Kevin since I've known Kevin all these years. That'd be wonderful. For, Thank yeah, you, Doug. Sure, absolutely. And then I would transfer that stock into the trust. And, you know, the issue there may be either I may have already used my estate tax exemption for prior gifts to my uh, family or, or some other place. And so I may not have enough uh, exemption to cover the amount that I want to give to you. So one of the approaches I can take is I can sell the stock into that trust and take back a promissory note. And when I do that, I'm making that sale as of today's. So, you know, if right now my, my stock is worth, you know, $100,000, but I think in five or 10 years or even less than that, because the startup is, you know, on such a trajectory, that stock will be converted to, you know, maybe 
10, you know, a million dollars or $10 million or whatever that number is. When I sell it, I basically locked in today's value. So I sell it to that trust for Kevin. I take back a promissory note and all of the future appreciation in that stock will be outside of my estate. And it's ultimately pass tax free to Kevin and then down to his kids. And, you know, it's, I've, I've worked all of that so that the idea is I'm using today's value, which is going to be low in the long-term picture to move the future appreciation of that stock out of my estate and out of your estate, Kevin. So that's really the goal that we're looking at. So I'm, I'm going to backtrack just a second here because you and I can get into this and we understand, you know, in, in the estate, out of the estate, by getting assets out of the estate, they are avoiding an estate tax. Can you just, assuming that, you know, a lot of our investors and listeners are sophisticated and they have had these conversations before, but assuming someone isn't, what are we trying to avoid by Absolutely, getting Kevin. assets outside of the estate? Absolutely. I think I, I put the cart in front of the horse a little bit on that. But uh, so so the issue is that we, we have a current estate tax exemption. And that's what I was mentioning earlier, the $11.7 million exemption. But to the extent that my assets exceed that exemption, and that's you know potentially that exemption going down, as I, as I mentioned a minute ago, above that amount, the, there will be a tax of 40% of the value above that 11.7 million. So for at your death, or if you give, if you gave it away, if you decided to give away more than that, the tax could also occur during your lifetime as a gift. But but at some point there would be a tax assessed against that over that balance. And that's assessed at 40% or 40 cents on every dollar above that amount. And it is a flat tax. So you know it doesn't matter if you're uh, you know hundred thousand dollars over the exemption or hundred million dollars over the exemption. In either case, you're still going to pay 40% across the board. So what we're really trying to do is, is avoid that impact on a family, mitigate the impact of these the, the estate tax, or you know what's sometimes generally referred to as the transfer tax system, the estate tax, the gift tax, and a third tax called the generation skipping tax. And so those, those are really the things that we're looking to try to mitigate for families. But that's why we look at techniques like the sale to a trust that will be able to shift that future appreciation where you've moved it out now where the value is low and you've used either a little bit of that $11.7 million exemption or maybe you had to do a sale like I was describing, but you've moved it outside of your estate now so that it will not be subject to that tax later when the value is increased. It's really a timing issue in that regard. How do I, when do I want to you know, move those assets out of my estate. Now when the value is low, or maybe I hold them to my till my passing and the value is value is much higher at that point. Yeah. So it's it's certainly a, you know, if done right from a family planning side, it's it makes the children and grandchildren happy to do this planning because ultimately they are the beneficiaries of that tax savings. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Doug, years ago when you were teaching our CFP program course, so that's how I met Doug. He was my instructor for the estate planning course at the University of Texas for the uh, Certified Financial Planners Program. And uh, you, you said this, and it stuck with me since, and I still talk about it with clients today. You said, when you pass away, your assets can go two of three places. They have to go to two, and they can only go to two places. And that is family, charity, and the IRS. Whom would you like to leave out? 
And uh, that sticks with me because I only met one person in my entire crew who said, I don't mind leaving money to the IRS. Uh, so speaking of that, I think charitable planning is often, you know, really overlooked. You know, there's the focus just to move assets to the family and then deal with it. But by including that third pillar through proper planning, you really can, you know, move everything to charity in your family and not necessarily lose control of it. So I know a lot of that as it comes in charitable trust planning. And uh, you and I spoke before the call that there's one particular type of charitable trust that you, you're doing that's working really well right now for families. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So one of the techniques, and to your point, there's lots of options, but one of the techniques that, that we use a lot regularly right now is what's called a charitable lead trust. So a charitable lead trust is a trust that you create, you know, a person transfers assets into this trust and it is an irrevocable transfer and an irrevocable trust, meaning you can't turn around and say, well, I don't, I don't want to do that take the money back. But once you transfer it, then every year that trust will pay an annuity to a charity of your, your choice. At the end of a period of years, the trust will terminate and what's left in the trust will come back to children or other family members, some individual that you've selected to benefit after the end of that charitable term. Now, the charitable term, you know, you have control over how long that can be, although most of our clients uh, are looking at, you know, terms that are probably somewhere around 20 years. And so you transfer it out and then there's an annuity paid to the charity over that 20 year period. At the end of the 20 year period, the remaining property comes back to the family members. Why it is so popular right now and why it is so useful right now really has to do with a couple of issues. The first of those issues is what is called the applicable federal rate, which is a interest rate that is published by the IRS on a monthly basis. And the reason that's important is that charitable lead trusts operate more tax efficiently and more efficiently for family members when the interest rate is low. And that's because it takes fewer years to actually get assets down to to children or whomever, you know, whatever family members you're getting into. Well, right now, Kevin, as you know, historically low interest rates on everything, right? Whether you're, you know, borrowing money to purchase a home or refinance a home or borrowing money for, you know, business transactions, historically low interest rates. And that AFR that the uh, IRS publishes on a monthly basis is tied to those true market rates. So we're at a very low interest rate right now. You know, we hit our very bottom of that about a year ago, but we're still really, really low as compared to what it, you know, that historically the applicable federal rate has been. And, and the, there's a rate called the 75-20 rate that's actually used in calculating these trusts, but it's a really opportune time to do that. The other issue is that when you create this trust, you, if, if you structured it correctly, you can get an income tax deduction on the formation of that trust. So you could, you know, put the, the, the assets into the charitable lead trust and take a current year income tax deduction for some portion of what you've gifted into the trust. In some cases, it may be the almost the entire amount that you've gifted in, depending on how you want to structure the amount that goes to charity versus the amount that's left for family and, and how, how that would break out between the two. So in that regard, it's a very opportune time because our interest rates are low. 
a lot of folks are encouraging very high income events, whether it's a liquidity event or just a, a really big year for their income for whatever reason. And so now they can they can look at it and basically, again, take advantage of the current year uh, income tax deduction when the charity actually gets it over several years, very similar to the donor advised fund that we talked about. Uh, but this technique actually ultimately has the assets come back to your family. So it's a very common technique to use. Uh, we're doing a lot of them right now for those reasons, right? Income tax uh, deductions can be very helpful as people are having big income events. And then the, the low interest rate makes the, the operation and the mechanics of a charitable lead trust work better right now than uh, it has maybe at other times when the interest rate was higher. Yeah, I've, I've seen that done with income producing real estate as well, because it has the cash flow to make the annuity payment. And then it, it comes back, especially if the family, you know, doesn't need or is going to have excessive, you know, tax ramifications on that payment, uh, buildings fully depreciated, things like that, you know, it can be a, a, a very useful tool. Absolutely, uh, Kevin. Absolutely. So speaking of, you know, useful tools, I would say by far the most common tool that I see used for estate planning or entity planning with our families is, is the family limited partnership or the family LLC. Uh, it's, I, I see it. It's almost always the core anchoring unit and all of these things are in and around it, the grantor trusts and the lead trusts and the donor advised funds and the, all of that stuff. Is, it's, it's all used. And this entity seems to be the anchor of most families. Please just explain to the podcast listeners why that is, why, why are these structures the most commonly used structures? Oh, absolutely, Kevin. So there's several reasons. And it is, as you described it, the anchor. I would also say it's probably the first piece and maybe the centerpiece of a lot of the planning that folks are doing is having a family limited partnership in place. Um, an FLP, as we would uh, state planning attorneys or you as an uh, advisor might refer to it, is kind of a shorthand for family limited partnership. An FLP is very, very common for a handful of reasons. Some of it is because it makes any types of, of transfers that we do between trusts for children or charitable trusts like you're describing more efficient. And what I mean by that is the assets inside a, a family limited partnership, if we wanted to split those up among, say, children, and I have three children, for example, and if I wanted to split up my assets among children, my three children or trust for my three children, and their names are Selby, Eliza, and Carter, you know, if I was going to make transfers of just the underlying assets, that could be very difficult depending on what those assets are made of. You know, if it's closely held stock, I might have to get, you know, agreements from other shareholders or agreements from my partners to do that. If it is, if it's real estate, that might not necessarily, you know, be work well to be divided among uh, children or trust for children. So a family limited partnership provides a centralized place to manage assets and to make those gifts. It's far more efficient in that regard. If I put the assets that I want to transfer to my kids in a family limited partnership and then transfer, you know, shares of that family limited partnerships into the trust for Selby and Eliza and Carter, as opposed to trying to transfer underlying assets. It also means that going forward, those assets are managed together and there's a centralized management so that everyone in the family, you know, is going up or down, you know, based on all of those assets together. So it keeps everything together and, can, and provides a lot of economies of scale in keeping all of that together. 
The other reason that people sometimes look at family limited partnerships is asset protection. So even if I'm not really concerned about, you know, making gifts yet, or I'm not sure how I'd want to make gifts, you know, which is a big step to take, the FLP provides predator protection. So if, for example, you know, I'm heading down bee caves towards your office, Kevin, and I, you know, fielding a phone call for my wife or my own office or whatever. And I, you know, I get in an accident that's my fault. And, you know, for whatever reason, it exceeds my insurance. Those assets in the FLP are creditor protected. You know, my, my, the person I injured, you know, they, they can't reach in there and take my underlying assets. They're creditor protected in that regard. You can also build around some controls about who can actually own an interest so that if I was worried about, you know, one of my children marrying somebody that, that I didn't necessarily approve of or something like that, I can build in some controls around who, who's qualified to own an interest in the family limited partnership. So those are all reasons we look at it. And kind of the last reason, which, you know, originally was the main reason that people did it, is that there can be some reduction in value for assets in a family limited partnership when they're transferred for gift and estate tax purposes. That's what's referred to as a discount for gift and estate tax purposes, in that it's a very real thing. And sometimes those discounts can be you know, impactful when we're looking at planning. The thing that I always tell clients, though, is using a family limited partnership just for the purpose of getting discounts is not necessarily a good a good idea. Um, the, the IRS is, is very concerned about planning solely around the idea of getting discounts. Now, if, we, if that's an added benefit when we're worried about creditor protection and we're worried about keeping the assets managed and kind of together within our family, great. But it should not be the only driving factor in terms of why we do a family-limited partnership. But to your point, Kevin, the vast majority of my clients, and like, like you, a lot of my clients are clients that have assets that are, you know, may, may have some form of a liquidity event that may pop in value at some point in time. Uh, and so, you know, closely held business interests, those kind of things. And so, you know, we look at it and say, well, in that situation, a family-limited partnership might be the, the very first step in, the, in that planning process. Yeah, I, I see it also used to help guide family governance. So families mm-hmm. will come together around, have a board meeting for the family partnership. Uh, and then also, you and I talked about this earlier, they used it to create a family bank, you know, a way to provide liquidity to family members. You know, a lot of times when there are multiple generations, you know, some of those family members go on to be very successful and then some follow their passion and become school teachers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they may not have the means to go qualify for a mortgage on a house in the district in which they teach, but the family bank can help them achieve that situation. The FLP can help them achieve those situations. And so, you know, very common to see that there. If we were to, um, if we were to mention one more thing that we didn't talk about today, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good question. You know, I would, I would say if there was one more thing that we really wanted to talk about with clients, probably the idea that right now we don't know what the future is going to hold. And we do have the opportunity to do some, some planning under the law as we have. And I would say, you know, making some decisions when we know what's going to happen now 
as opposed to maybe sitting on the sidelines. That's probably the main thing that I would say. So whether it's let's start a family limited partnership and start doing some transfers or let's start, you know, let's create some trust for your children or trust for your spouse, which is called a slat. You know, I would look at it and say, really what we are is, you know, potentially in the waning days of a golden period of estate planning where our exemptions are high, our interest rates are low, and we know what the law is going to be. So that that's what I would try. I try to stress to my clients. And, and I know you think the same way, Kevin. Our role as advisors is not to make decisions for our clients, but to inform them to the extent that they can make their own decisions about what's right for them and their family. But in a way that, you know, they know that they're, they're, the clock may be running on a lot of this. So, so if I was going to give you, you know, clients and, and say this, the, the one thing to take away from right now, that's the thing to take away. In terms of what techniques to use, you know, a lot of the techniques that we've already hit on with doing sales to trust or, you know, starting with an FLP and then selling interest in an FLP to a trust are really what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of those are either to trust for children, or probably more popularly a trust for your spouse, which is called a spousal lifetime access trust. That's generally, we probably are doing that more than we have historically, you know, that slat has become has become probably the primary planning tool. So is that, I hope, I'm hoping that that's kind of answering your question, although I'm a little bit long-winded, I guess. No, I think it's spot on. The term we use is, you know, we never want to get our, as I alluded to earlier in the podcast, we never want to get our clients into a situation where they, they no longer have flexibility. And so, you know, I always say our job is, we don't know what's ahead. Uh, and this is on the investment side too. Our job is to help you pack your bags. Our job is to make sure that you're in the right position and you have the right tools at your disposal on hand to address a changing estate tax situation, a changing income tax landscape, uh, a changing investment landscape and market landscape as well. So I think that's really what you're saying is let's not get you too tied down in one thing, but let's make sure you have the flexibility and the options to make the change when you need to make the change. Absolutely. Well, I will say this as we wrap it up, I always have to make disclaimers, but uh, on this podcast, we are not providing tax and legal advice to anyone on the podcast. Please contact your tax and legal professionals to review anything that was discussed here to ensure it's appropriate for you, your specific situation and your family. Doug, I know you and I have heard that many, many times, but I always have to reiterate it here at the end. Last thing is if uh, someone on the podcast listening needs to get a hold of you, what is the best way to reach you? Sure. So uh, I'm always available for your folks, Kevin, as you know. Um, so really the best way to, to reach me is through my office, which you can find contact information for me at mcginnislaw.com, which is www.mcginnislaw.com. And my email is just dpaul at mcginnislaw.com. Uh, and that's the best way to do it. But I will also tell any of your listeners, um, if I'm speaking too fast, just call Kevin because he can, he can get you in touch with me really quickly. Uh, we, like I said, we've known each other a long time, worked together. I appreciate, I value our, our working relationship and then also just our friendship outside of that. Uh, even though you're an Auburn Tiger, I still value that. Yeah, I know. So, I, I mentioned the Louisiana State University. I couldn't pull myself into saying LSU. So I, had I to know. go ahead and spell know, it out. I, but, know, uh, I know, but at least we have a common enemy in so we do tigers have to stick together so exactly. all good stuff well doug thank you so much i appreciate you being here Absolutely. sharing your time with us and uh as always you know 
if there's anything that uh, anyone needs to reach out to Doug or us, please do so. You can find us uh, like Doug at our website, cnesericapital.com, which is S-I-N-E-C-E-R-A capital.com. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.cenaceracapital.com. Cenacera Capital LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cenacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on the market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, nor liability for, decisions based on such information and it should not be relied on as such. The lawyer ratings referenced in this podcast are provided by Best Lawyer LLC, an independent resource for ranking and reviewing lawyers. To be granted this ranking by Best Lawyers, one must be nominated for recognition while working at a private practice. These nominees are subject to a peer review process consisting of lawyers who are currently recognized by Best Lawyers LLC. The feedback is then reviewed and verified before final determinations are made regarding the rankings. No fees were paid in conjunction with this ranking.